Welcome back to 10 Blocks. This week's special episode features audio from a Manhattan Institute event titled In Defense of Incarceration. The event was hosted by City Journal contributing editor and Nick O'Neill fellow Raphael A. Mangual, Barry Latzer, a professor emeritus at John Jay College and the author of The Myth of Overpunishment, and John Paul Wright, a professor at the University of Cincinnati and the author of Conservative Criminology, a call to restore balance to the social sciences. We hope you enjoy. Good afternoon, and welcome to another Manhattan Institute eventcast brought to you by our Policing and Public Safety Initiative. Uh, before we get going, I just want to quickly remind everyone that throughout today's event, you should feel free to send us your questions as they come to you through the comment function of whatever platform you're watching us on, and I will do my very best to get to as many as I can during the discussion. Now, as I've said before, the primary aim of the Manhattan Institute's Policing and Public Safety Initiative is to have meaningful and positive impacts on criminal justice policy debates, which we aim to do in a couple of different ways. One is by drawing on the experience and expertise of the nation's leading practitioners. The other is through intelligent and creative scholarship and commentary that's rooted in empirical evidence, which brings me to our guests for today. Now, in the interests of time, I'm going to keep the introduction short. Uh, so I'll start with Barry Latzer, who is a professor emeritus at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice and the author of many wonderful books on the topics we're going to discuss today, including The Rise and Fall of Violent Crime in America and The Myth of Overpunishment. And then we also have John Paul Wright, who is a professor of criminal justice at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, and he's also the co-author of uh, an author of many books on these issues, including conservative criminology. So I'm going to go ahead and um, start with you, uh, Barry, about your new book, um, The Myth of Overpunishment. So we are often told that um, that that we over-incarcerate in the United States, that we have a mass incarceration problem. And yet your book argues that the idea of overpunishment is a myth. And so I wanna start just by getting a sense from you about how you think the public should actually understand the charge of mass incarceration. What do people mean when they accuse the United States of being a mass incarceration state? And what is it that people who levy that charge are getting wrong? Uh, thank you so much, Ralph, uh, and it's great to see you and be on the air with you again. Um, this is a strange phenomenon. If you ask people what is meant by mass incarceration, they can't really answer the question very well because they don't have the numbers to back it up. But when you examine the numbers, when you start looking at the number of crimes, when you start looking at the number of arrests, and then when you start looking at the number of people actually put into prison, where the most serious offenders go, what you see is a big disconnect. Uh, you have, uh, for instance, uh, 10 million arrests a year. Now, I don't say all of these are very serious offenses. I don't say they're all imprisonable offenses, but quite a few are. And yet you only have maybe 570,000 people admitted to prison each year. So what the opponents of imprisonment, the decarcerationists, as I call them, what they argue is, well, look, the United States has one of the highest imprisonment rates in the world, and certainly among the so-called first world nations, 
let's say, democracies with advanced economies, it's probably the highest. Well, this is true, but you have to examine the reasons for this. And the main reason is we have very different crime rates, especially when it comes to murder, than these other countries. And therefore, we have offenders serving long terms. And then they repeat their offenses, and they serve even longer terms. So one can't go only by the rates of imprisonment. One must also look at the time served in prison, the actual time served. When we look at the actual time served for each offense, we find that the United States is not nearly as harsh and mean and cruel as one might think. In fact, and I have some numbers here, I haven't, I should memorize them, right, Ralph? But I haven't. So here's some time served data to share with your viewers, with our viewers. A robber serves the median time is 3.2 years. The mean time is 4.7 years. For assault, the median is 1.4 years. The median is the number in the middle. If you lined up all the numbers of all the people serving time, the one in the middle is the median. The mean is the, is the average. For assault, the average is two and a half years. For drugs, oftentimes reputed to be the main reason for so-called mass incarceration. Here's the reality. For drugs, median time served 1.2 years, average 1.8 years. So when you break it down that way, when you start looking at the, the, the time actually served behind bars for each offense, we don't look so mean. We don't look so cruel. I'm not sure that we're any more harsh than these other so-called first world countries, the Europeans. You have to make comparisons based on the actual crime. And one other yeah. point, I don't want to go on any further at this stage. I'm sure I'll get more chances. One other point, a lot of our crimes are committed with guns, obviously armed robbery by definition, but murders, around 70% of our murders are committed with firearms. Now, these firearm crimes lead to longer sentences and longer time served. And you know, if you go to England, you go to France, you go to Europe, and you look at the number of gun crimes, it's minuscule compared to ours, minuscule. They have very few firearm murders compared to the United States. Very few armed robberies compared to the United States. Now these firearm crimes, gun crimes, I mean, they jack up the time served with good reason. Guns terrify people. <clears throat> they result in terrible injuries. They result in deaths. So there's good reason to give longer sentences and therefore more time behind bars to people who are committing all these crimes with firearms. You know, you brought, so you brought this up a really explains good, the difference between us yeah. and the Euros. You bring up a really good point about the actual amount of time served. As you know, I've argued uh, many a time that if you actually dig into that number, you will find that somewhere in the range of 40% of state prisoners 
actually are released within a year of entering prison, which is not a, a, a small number and, and seems quite incongruous with the kind of punitive uh, label that often gets attached to um, incarceration in the United States. And so, you know, John, I want to move on to you here because, you know, Barry mentioned this idea of, you know, leading the first world in incarceration and, you know, uh, makes the argument that we're not actually more punitive, which I, I think holds some water, right? If you look at the UK, for example, the mandatory minimum sentence uh, for illegal gun possession is five years, um, hmm. whereas, you know, that, that offense is regularly met with probation uh, in many parts of the United States. Um, Germany's sentence is a higher proportion right. of, of murderers to life in prison than does the U.S. But, you know, the, the sort of nature of the first world comparison uh, seems to imply that we should strive to achieve parity with other Western European democracies on the incarceration front. And so, you know, one of the best ways, I think, to evaluate the degree to which we have an over-incarceration problem is to ask whether we could decarcerate sufficiently, safely. That is mm -hmm. to say that whether we could release enough people to achieve parity without severely harming uh, the public safety. And, you know, I think Barry talked a lot about, you know, some of the crimes that that people who are incarcerated are in for and what that means yeah. for the potential risk associated with decarceration. But, you know, you have also talked a lot about the role that psychology plays in crime. And when we're talking about the risk of recidivism, I, I suspect that psychology looms large. And so I just want to get some thoughts from you about what you think the American public really needs to understand about how the typical prisoner uh, sort of comes to engage in a life of crime and why we should be sort of skeptical of the idea uh, of the, the sort of miraculous turnaround that we're all told uh, to explain. Yeah. Well, let me address a couple of points that, that Barry also made that this mass incarceration is a nebulous concept, right? Uh, nobody will adequately define it to say, this is the threshold which incarcerate too many. I think in large part, because they don't wanna say that this is the threshold in which we incarcerate too few. Uh, this is where policy comes in. This is where we have to say, okay, right? What is that threshold? What should we be targeting? Uh, what types of numbers are we looking at? And can we do anything to reduce those numbers safely? Look, there are humanitarian reasons why we may want to do this, maybe economic reasons why we want to do this, some justice reasons why we want to do this. But I think the last two years especially have shown us that simply not locking up people, simply emptying our, our jails, uh, which is what happened in COVID, has, has been somewhat disastrous uh, in a number of places. In, in, in one jurisdiction in California, for example, I think 60, 70% of the people that they let out uh, for COVID relief were rearrested within within a year, maybe, maybe a little bit less. There are national studies on recidivism uh, that, that, that date back decades. They show recidivism levels have always been very high. The latest Bureau of Justice Statistics uh, uh, study uh, 400,000 people released from state prisons shows, you know, substantial substantial rates of recidivism to the point that it's it, you're, if you were a betting person you would want to bet on failure and and the sort of that's the harsh reality now the question then would be why right and why do people return back and forth and back and forth in, in, in and out of jail in and out of prison on and off probation dozens of times some of this is related to psychology some of this is related to the nature of, of offending the lifestyle that people engage in uh, there's a 
large literature and life course uh, trajectory of offenders where we see the most serious offenders uh, start misbehaving very early in life. That sets them on a trajectory that includes in, you know, failure of school, problems with friends, the rejection of conventional uh, pursuits like education, work, what have you. They begin to acquire arrests fairly early in life. They uh, are placed on probation, typically initially, uh, several times, typically fail, typically get rearrested, hit jail. And by the time they, they get to their first stint in prison, they may have eight, nine, 10 or more prior arrests. So it becomes literally a lifestyle. <clears throat> and there's a huge uh, sort of sociology on this as well. It's not all uh, the psychology of offending, but but the networks that people belong to, the comfort levels, the types of behaviors they engage in make sense to them, make sense to them on the street. Gangs are sort of notorious for this and becomes very hard for people to extract themselves uh, from that lifestyle. And I always tell people, you know, it is difficult to change behavior. It's difficult for us to change behavior. How many times have we tried to diet or start to exercise, right? Well, this is somewhat similar. Habituated types of behavioral patterns are very difficult to change. And this includes engagement in crime. Yeah, I think that's um, that's actually really, really fascinating because recidivism is, I think, in many ways at the heart of the debate about, you know, our mass incarceration problem or alleged mass incarceration problem. And I think one of the reasons that it, it, it features so prominently is because I suspect that the vast majority of the American public has an intuitive understanding for the sort of main penological end served by incarceration. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, we that 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 sounds like a sort of criminological term of art. So I'll define it for our audience. There, there are generally four penological ends served by incarceration. The first is incapacitation, which means that while an individual is incarcerated, they are incapacitated such that they cannot victimize, uh, except in the rare case of escape, members of society. Then there's deterrence, which is kind of broken down into two categories of, of general and specific um, retribution, which is, sort of refers to the the idea that sort of society has to see um, the 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 mores that it has elevated, vindicated through the criminal justice mm -hmm. system in order to you know feel satisfied. Um, and then there's rehabilitation, which uh, I think also along with incapacitation really speaks to. Um, the, the recidivism problem, which I think is really the problem that we need to solve if we are going to have any hope of successfully decarcerating. And by successfully, I mean decarcerating at some significant level without massively harming the public safety. And so, um, Barry, I just want to, you know, get a sense from you as to, you know, which of these four penological ends do you think is the the sort of main one served by incarceration is the most important. Um, and, and what does the public need to understand about how these ends sort of interact with each other when we're making decisions about who to send to prison? Well, I think to the general public, incapacitation would be number one. People want to be protected from offenders. In truth, though, without retribution, you really don't mm -hmm. have a modern system or any coherent system of uh, criminal punishment because retribution requires that the punishment, quote, fit the crime, that it be, in other words, in proportion to the damage done by the offender when he committed the crime, and that the uh, punishment be 
appropriate in the sense that it's a longer or harsher punishment for more serious, more harmful offenses. And I think everyone would accept this. And I think, therefore, this is really an essential to criminal justice. Yeah, I, I, the, problem, I wanna... the problem is the conflict. You, you, you brought up the conflict, mm -hmm. uh, Ralph. Let me just stick in this point. The, the problem is the conflict between rehabilitation and both retribution and incapacitation. Because yeah. if, if, you, if, you're, if you're too lenient with an offender, then you undercut or you risk undercutting retribution, or I'm sorry, retribution, and you risk uh, mm -hmm. uh, under, undercutting incapacitation as well. And, and that's the nub of the problem. When, when we hear people talk about retribution, it often sounds really philosophical. Um, but, but what is the practical implication of falling short on this front? I mean, are there sort of practical problems that we need to worry about with respect to retribution such that we would expect to see these problems come about if we fail to satiate society's desire to see criminal conduct punished. And John, I'll go to yes. you on this. Yeah, certainly. And and I, I agree with what you know Barry just said. Retribution is an important component of American correctional policy. And I don't think we should shy away from it. Uh, crime in many ways is cheating, right? It's a strategy that people engage in to acquire resources through you know, without having to work at it, uh, uh, to get ahead in life without really putting in effort like everyone else has to. So it's a shortcut for a lot of a lot of things. So if you understand that, that crime, in a sense, is engaging in cheating behavior, then what do we do with people who cheat, who jump ahead of the line? Right. There's going to be some type of sanction for that. And, and there has to be not only for the person involved in the cheating, but, but, but for the, everyone else to feel like their efforts, right, by playing by the rules, going to work every day, paying their bills, paying their bills, all of this stuff matters. Or someone to come in and, for example, you know, burglar at home, steal um, what they have worked so hard for so many years to take, right, to be turned loose, right, to simply have a slap on the wrist is not typically enough uh, to offset the, the anger that people feel when their uh, habitat's been violated. But the other part is th of this is criminal offenders are not stupid, right? They understand the score. They understand the game. They know it better than you or I. So they, you know, uh, if the system doesn't hold them long enough, if the system doesn't exact some type of retribution, it can actually feed back into the violence on the streets. And this is partly what we're seeing today, where people are released without bail. People are released willy-nilly who've been accused of engaging in shootings and most likely have. Uh, if it has a sort of feedback loop on the street. And, and, and the, the folks who are players know the score and they know the penalties and they know the costs. And to some degree, they make rational uh, decisions around those. Am I right to sort of uh, say that you were kind of implying uh, that one of the reasons that society's desire to see this kind of cheating conduct punished is 
the risk of kind of vigilantism, I guess, for lack of a better word, right? Um, you know, we often hear about, you know, violent gun crime mm -hmm. in the sort of pockets of concentrated crime uh, across the United States. And when I talk to, you know, police officers, other law enforcement mm -hmm. officials on the ground in those places, they often tell me that at the root of those violent incidents are disputes, essentially, mm -hmm. are arguments where people feel that whatever mores predominate in that area have been violated. And rather than go to the criminal justice system, um, yeah. they are, are sort of handling those problems through violence, whether that's deadly violence or non-deadly violence. Um, I suspect that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking now of old movies like Death Wish, uh, you yeah. know, that if we right. fail on some societal level to communicate society's condemnation of criminal conduct that we risk sort of elevating the kind of Bernie Getzes of the world who may decide to take justice into their own hands. And I also suspect that that's not mm -hmm. a world that either of you would want to live in. I'd love for either of you to offer yeah. comments on that. Yeah. Well, Barry's book, um, you know, Rise and Fall of Violent Crime in America addresses sort of the honor culture uh, that, that uh, or the code of the streets, as others refer to it, where any insult or disrespect has to be met with sort of instant uh, retaliatory violence. And, you know, the work that I do with, with, with police, especially in, in gun crimes and so forth, uh, we see this frequently, that, that retaliatory violence is what's largely driving our crime rates. It's not territories, not drugs. Uh, it, it's this type of culture that uh, ha has been around for a little while, but but the demands of its participants, uh, the willingness, if not the eagerness, uh, to use a weapon uh, to save face. Now, this has historical roots, actually. Mm -hmm. It goes back to the 19th century. It's a Southern thing. Yeah. Southern whites first, and then Southern blacks second. And when the, you had the great migration of African Americans to the Northern cities, they carried this culture with them especially the young males, of course, and just throw in drugs or alcohol and a, and a handgun. And, and now you could explain a whole lot of the violent crime in our big cities today. You, you, even the, the liberal media, when they describe what's going on in places like Philadelphia, I've read these articles, and what are they talking about? They're talking about gang fights over what? Really, as John said, over, over nothing particularly tangible. This is a matter of upholding your honor, to use the old-fashioned term. Mm -hmm. that, that's what it's about. Yeah, you know, I want to, I want to, I, I suppose, push back, although maybe that's the, the wrong word on that a little bit, because I suspect that if we dug into the data, we would still see a pretty significant disparity in serious violent offending between, say, Southern Blacks and Southern Whites, even in the sort of pockets of the country where you would expect that honor culture um, mm -hmm. to predominate in the white community, um, you know, particularly parts of Appalachia, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, is, is that true? Do we do we still see that disparity? And then, if so, why hasn't that sort of culture carried through? in say lower income uh white parts of the south the same way that it has with respect to uh black communities across the country i'm not sure it hasn't carried through i know when i researched that book the rise and fall um it had carried through the, the southern whites still had the highest violent crime rates among white people 
And there were these uh, poor areas, Appalachia among them, mm -hmm. where you had very high violent crime rates. Um, have they gone down since? I'll tell you the truth. I don't know the answer to that one. That would be a fascinating research uh, topic. Um, I'm not sure they have. I imagine that in poor white areas, especially of the uh, South, you still have uh, high, high rates of violent crime. You know, I, I want to kind of get into one of the other sort of uh, penological justifications for incarceration that we haven't talked about yet, but also start touching on some of the arguments that advocates for reform make in favor of mass decarceration. And one of those arguments has to do with the idea of deterrence. This, this The claim mm -hmm. essentially goes that, well, the research has been done and it shows that longer sentences don't actually deter people from committing crime. Um, we see this because of the high recidivism rates that people who are subjected to these sentences uh, continue to engage in. Um, therefore, incarceration doesn't actually deter future crime by virtue of having been exposed to that treatment and exposed to that, that penalty. What do you make of that argument? Uh, is there something that the argument misses with respect to general versus specific deterrence? And maybe you guys can explain, and I'll start with you, John, uh, you know, what those terms actually refer to. So, you know, uh, specific deterrence, we're going we're gonna to hammer you, right, so that we deter you from future conduct. Generally, general deterrence is, you know, more broad-based. We see that person get hammered, so we don't want to uh, face those consequences. Um, I think that there are two points I would make in terms of deterrence uh, and specific deterrence, right? It is, I, I think it's true, right, that some people are not deterrable. And I think that says something, right? Uh, for you or I, or for people listening, I think the majority of us are very easily deterred. We do not want to go uh, be uh, introduced to the criminal justice system. We do not want the consequences and we certainly do not want to lose our freedom. We don't want the lifestyle. We don't want the risk. We don't want the reputation. On the other hand, there are people uh, who've lived much of their lives, three decades or so in and out of state facilities um, and they're not deterrable. And that says something about how they see the world, right? And that's actually the folks that we do want to lock up. The folks that you can't sort of uh, penalize enough, right? You have to incapacitate. I think the flip side of this is, you know, if we take this argument to its logical extremes and we just said, you know, we're not going to have any penalties for violent crime, right? How many more people do you think would engage in violent crime if there were no penalties for doing so? Uh, so the argument that prisons don't deter, they deter generally. Uh, they may not deter specific individuals, but they do deter generally. Yeah. Can I add a couple of points, uh, Ralph? Absolutely, please. Yeah. Yeah. Um, first of all, the studies on this, as I read them, are mixed. Some studies mm. say no deterrence. Some studies say deterrence. So that's the first point. It's not clearly established in the literature as, as I read it. Uh, and, and the second point is, uh, where's your plan B? Uh, you don't think prison really deters? So what's what's the concept that you propose? What do the decarcerationists say about the alternatives to uh, imprisoning people? I don't see any really viable uh, alternatives. 
they they don't have any. So you know, we, we have to have an alternative. This is the real world. Excuse me, just saying this is bad. A is bad, but I don't have B. That's not a good answer. We need we need a, an answer that that really works. Now I have a suggestion which I'll get into maybe later about electronic monitoring that I don't think is yet an alternative to imprisonment, but I think it might be an effective adjunct to imprisonment with people who are released. But I'll save that one. Yeah. And, and, and let's not forget, Ralph, you know, the argument that long sentences don't deter. We have to remember that oftentimes, right, states play a lot of games with sentencing. Uh, so, for example, you'll hear uh, an offender in Kentucky, right, will be a felony offender sentenced to five years. Well, they have a 20% rule in Kentucky. 20% At 20% of your sentence, you're eligible for parole. About 60% of the people are released at that point. If you serve time in jail prior, that counts. So technically, you could do a year on five, right? Uh, other states do the same thing, right, where they tack on loads of good time, uh, it is not uncommon to see people with hit with, say, a 10-year sentence do three or four, right? And I think that's what we have to remember, right? There's the symbolic aspect that says 10 years, 20 years, right? Uh, and then the reality is a lot, a lot less than that. Yeah, so yeah, true. Yeah. And look at, look at what these decarcerations always point to, Ralph. They always point to sentences. They never talk about the times these guys are actually behind bars. They say, oh, what cruel sentences. He gave him 40 years, 50 years. But they don't talk about how much time the guy actually served. And we know 80% of, of people in prison are, are, are released before their terms are up. Yeah, no, that's a really good point, actually. I'm, I'm, I, I can't remember the specific study, but I, I remember reading an analysis of a change in sentencing regimes where the mm -hmm. regime became significantly more punitive. And so it was kind of gave us a natural experiment and, and the, the researchers had assessed whether this change had actually had any measurable impact on crime and they determined mm -hmm. that it didn't. And so this was the the sort of top line finding that, you know, this new harsher sentencing regime doesn't actually uh, reduce crime in any measurable way. And mm -hmm. when you dig into the study, what you find is that sentencing practices themselves actually change. didn't change very much at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and so that 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 I think actually is a really good point. I want to talk about mm -hmm. another argument here that um, I know I've heard a lot that that has gotten you know quite a lot of play in some of the debates that I've participated in, which is this idea that incarceration is itself criminogenic to the point that mm -hmm. the benefits, whatever they are, of incapacitation and general deterrence are essentially outweighed, um, such that people who are exposed to prison and jail come out so much worse um, than they went in that it actually would have been better to not incarcerate them at all, even if they would have continued to commit crimes um, because they come out so much more violent and mm -hmm. prone to criminality. Uh, John, what do you make of that argument? It, you know, what does it get wrong? What does it get right? <clears throat> uh, let, let's say that, let, let's say for sake of argument that it, it could be true, right? There clearly are, are people uh, who are not highly involved in crime that, you know, if you send them to prison and what have you, they could come out a lot worse. So, so it's not an impossibility. I think 
the, the flip side of that is if, if we actually look at the data, the folks that are going to prison generally, especially in state prisons and especially on, you know, the, 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 the violent crime charges and so forth, have extensive criminal histories. They have failed uh, previously at other types of, you know, whether it's probation or double super secret probation or whatever else. Uh, it is difficult to say right at that point that given their past and the time they hit prison that somehow prison transformed them into something you know, even more problematic uh, the recidivism rates you know are, are not necessarily bearing this out either uh, the there are collateral consequences to sending people to prison I think we do need to be aware of those and I think you know, some of the uh, prison critics are are correct right but there are also collateral positive consequences. So there are studies, for example, that show that, uh, and there, there's qualitative research that also shows that sometimes when a parent is arrested and incarcerated, the kids actually start to do better, right? That prison also has probably saved the lives of a lot of offenders. We, we forget that, right? That it's much more dangerous on the street. Uh, their health their nutrition and so forth typically goes up while in prison. Their lives are more stable and concrete. And I'm not saying that this is the, the uh, a goal that we should strive for, right? Uh, but what I am saying is that a life of crime is very dangerous and it's a young man's game. And it comes out, uh, it generates lots and lots of negative collateral consequences for that person and for the people around them. So to say that prison is the cause of that, right, seems to me to be, uh, substantively misspecified. Yeah, Barry, I mean, I wonder if you have any thoughts on this. I mean, as someone who has kind of studied the sort of historical trajectories of crime in the United States, I mean, I would suspect that as incarceration went up across the country, we would have seen violent crime rise in its wake. Right. And yet, you know, at, at a macro level, um, the increase in the rate of incarceration in the United States seems to be associated with a decrease in the rate of serious crime. And so, you know, are there are there reasons to be skeptical of, of this claim that, you know, by and large, prison is so criminogenic that it actually doesn't pay to incarcerate? Well, it depends on uh, what's the cause and what's the effect, doesn't it? I mean, uh, sure, there was a point. There's a lag in the system, Ralph, where you have a rise in violent crime, let's take the late 1960s, early sure. 1970s, and the system is actually giving lighter sentences and sending fewer people to prison altogether. So here we have the kind of lag that we definitely do not want in the sense that it's not really responsive to the crime problem. And then in the early 2000s, late 1990s, you have the flip side lag where crime mm -hmm. is now going down, but the system has been so built up that you have another lag in reducing in incarceration, reducing uh, imprisonment. And of course, this is the one that the decarcerations always point to. They, they always refer to this lag and that they're right. There is a lag. They forget about the one in the late 60s, mm -hmm. early 70s, when the system was releasing a lot of offenders yeah. and thereby causing more crime. So, I mean, 
of the two legs, which is the worst one? It seems to me the earlier one is the is the worst one because the price is being paid by the general public in that first lag, and the price is being paid by criminal offenders in the second lag. Mm-hmm. So I'd rather see the second lag than the, than the other one. Of course, the idea is to come up with a, a kind of a homeostasis, right, where you hit right. the you hit the sweet spot. That's hard to do. Barry, I want to go back to a point that you raised earlier as a critique of the decarceration movement, which was that, you know, they don't seem to have very good ideas as to what to replace, um, you know, this system with. And I suspect that if one of them were here today, they would say that we should divert funding away from the criminal justice apparatus mm-hmm. and to addressing the kinds of root causes that they say are the drivers of crime, things like poverty, education, unemployment, um, and that if we just simply spent more money in these spaces, we would actually get to a point in which prison and policing wasn't even necessary. I mean, what do you what do you respond to that argument with? Somehow, I've seen that movie before, Ralph. Yeah. In, the, in the 60s and the 70s, they made the same argument. It was the same pitch. But I don't think the public was willing to accept that, and with good reason because violent crime especially, but all crime was was soaring. And there was a, a rejection in a sense of, of the rehabilitation oriented uh, criminal justice system at, at that time. And, and that would include putting more money into social uh, programs. Um, mm-hmm. There's no evidence that that really reduces crime in fact, there's evidence that it did not because a lot of money was put into social programs right. in the late 60s and early 70s, and crime skyrocketed thereafter. So I, I just, I'm, I'm not persuaded. But even if it did work, it's obviously a long-term or at least a medium-term solution, isn't it? I mean, you're not going to get a turnaround because of those programs immediately, this is not an answer to when to to, to muggers and murderers mm-hmm. and thieves right now. That that's just not the kind of answer the public would accept. And, and I think nor do we. I, I think that's exactly right. Now, I, I, John, I want to get your thoughts on this as well. But but before I do, I just want to sort of tell a quick story that that just came to mind as Barry was talking because I, you know, have a book of my own out on on these topics mm-hmm. and was on the uh, Trevor Noah show on Comedy Central and. You know, he kind of made this sort of root cause argument. And in response, I gave him some statistics out of Chicago showing that there was a massive expenditure on uh, per people spending and a massive decline in um, black male unemployment during a period in which we saw homicides increase more than 50 percent. And his response was really interesting to me. And I wish I would have said this on the air. Um, But basically, he said, well, you know, if I were building, say, a soccer team with the goal of winning a championship, I would start with the farm system. Right. And you don't actually get to the point of the championship until you've developed those players, recruited them, uh, you know, found a way to mesh the team, coach them up and then developed a strategy that fits those players and then put that strategy into practice, which I thought was, you know, a fair point. But what I wish I would have said was like, yeah, but people are dying today and Mm -hmm. they need help uh, today. So anyway, I I just wanted to tell that story, but also just want to get your thoughts uh, on, you know, what to kind of make of the sort of addressing root causes as the alternative to our yeah, traditional this, criminal justice system. This used to be hugely popular, uh, you know, 
criticism, right? That, that the criminal justice system doesn't do anything to solve crime. The police don't do anything to stop crime, you know, because the root causes are, are still there. Indeed, you know, when I was a young professor, that's what I said. And as you read more, as you go out, and especially if you go out and, and hang with the cops or probation or talk to offenders on the street, right? Um, I've yet to meet a root cause of crime. I think James, James Hugh Wilson may have said something like this, right? Um, if it were that easy, we would have solved it a long time ago, right? It used to be unemployment was the root cause. Well, unemployment was substantial, has been substantially lower than it was in uh, it used to be poverty, it used to be, you know, you name it, blocked opportunities. We spent hundreds of billions of dollars on the theory of blocked opportunities, right? That, that people couldn't meet their uh, goals, so they deviated and committed crime in a nutshell. Now, <clears throat> is, is there, you know, should, should we spend money on social programs? That's policy decision. Uh, we can do it if we want to. Should we do away with the justice system? <laughs> Uh, defang the justice system? Absolutely not. The two are not necessarily connected. Uh, it, it, I, I have found in, in, in sort of conversation with people who are very critical of the justice system, they, they seem to think that the justice system is the problem, not the criminal. And this is where some of the, uh, what, we were talk, what we were talking about earlier Right. Well, sending people to prisons, criminogenic, right? Contact with the systems, criminogenic, uh, police arresting people, criminogenic. They've really turned this argument on its head. Right. So they're trying to divert in every instance, right? Trying to keep people from the justice system, trying, you know, uh, juvenile offenders, even violent juvenile offenders, right? Divert them from the system because somehow the system just gobbles up everybody and, and turns them into something far, far worse. Well, you know, human behavior is just not like that necessarily. And there are people, unfortunately, that we have to incapacitate. I'll say it again, right? It's an unpopular statement, but there are people that are dangerous who are highly criminal, criminally active. They commit lots and lots of crimes without ever getting caught. Uh, and they commit lots of different crimes and they do so for decades of their life. And the only thing that we can do with certainty to reduce uh, the damage that they do is to lock them up. And what we do with them when they're locked up is another story. There are people that we have to incarcerate for shorter periods of time, right? Who may find their way and may say enough is enough. Uh, incarceration, by the way, is one of the processes that lead to desistance. I mentioned that crime is a young man's game, right? Uh, you know, many offenders who have finally seen the light have said, I can't do it anymore, right? I'm up on another strike. If I hit this one, I'm going away for, you know, 25 or 30, or they realize their friends are dead. All the lies that they were told on the street, right, were just that, lies, that they're, they're now 30, 40, 50 years of age, and they have nothing to show for it. You know, right? John, when you were just talking about the reality of incorrigibility, essentially, mm -hmm. right, that some people mm -hmm. just need to be locked up, I was... Reminded of, of an old James Q. Wilson essay uh, about rehabilitation prospects called Nothing Works, mm -hmm. which was essentially uh, an encapsulation of his argument, right? Which was that we just don't know how to reliably rehabilitate criminal offenders, let alone how to do it at scale. Um, my question for you, John, is, is that still true today? Have we learned 
more about rehabilitation to have more hope? Or is that still uh, very far down the road? We, we have learned more about it. Uh, there's been a huge push in, in corrections to sort of professionalize this aspect of it, to really uh, create what they call cognitive behavioral programs to change the thinking of people who are uh, involved in the justice system, change the behavior. Uh, there's, there's a mix of studies showing some effects and there's a recent meta-analysis showing no effect. Uh, the, the, the problem is we can get a good program that seems to be functional in one place, but we can't replicate it to all the other places. So that that's sort of the, the, the difficulty with rehabilitation, right? Uh, it's, it's a good thing to try. I, I think uh, people do benefit uh, from it in some ways, even if it doesn't reduce incarceration in the aggregate. Uh, it takes time, right? Desistance uh, for many of these folks is a process. So it probably can help in that process in the long run, but it's not something I would necessarily wager against on public safety. Here's an yeah. irony in that one too, Ralph. Mm -hmm. the, the programs that seem to be most effective are the ones that are backed up by a threat of incarceration. Yeah. If you fail at it, I'm not talking about for guys already in, I'm talking about for people who are out. If you fail the program and you're threatened with jail or imprisonment, the program seems to work better than if you don't have this mm -hmm. threat hanging over your head should you fail. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me say one other thing, please. Um, in the in the correctional treatment literature, right, they recommend about 200 direct hours, right, on high risk people. It takes a lot, right? I mean, you're talking about embedded thought processes of uh, you know, lifestyle patterns and so forth. It takes a lot to change that. Where do you where do you get 200 direct service hours, right? And I mentioned this one time in a conference on juveniles uh, because the push, had, if, if you think to push the decarcerate at, at the adult level of something, it's been going on at the juvenile level uh, for quite some time and, and they have been pretty successful at it. So where would you get the type of treatment uh, with that level of intensity and consistency, you're not going to get it right uh, on the streets and you're not going to get it in a probation, off a probation office, right, in some type of facility. That's, that's where you get your bigger sort of get higher risk people and you get that level of intensity and, and rehabilitative effort. Yeah, I want to get to some audience questions, but before I do, I have one other um, for you both, which is that, you know, if, if it's true that we don't know how to reliably rehabilitate, let alone its scale, are there things that we can do to make prison less traumatic on offenders? I mean, one of the more common psychological diagnoses for people being released from prison is actually PTSD. And I would imagine that you know, being on edge in an environment in which the threat of violence looms large can be incredibly mm -hmm. psychologically taxing over a long period of time. How, if at all, can we think about making prisons safer and more conducive to, if not rehabilitation, at least less conducive to the kind of mm -hmm. uh, sort of maladaptive behavior that we often see people come out of prison with? John, this is yours. Okay. <laughs> Well, yeah, for, first of all, I, I would say, you know, going to prison is the punishment, 
right? And we have to keep that in mind. You're, you're not supposed to be punished per se while in prison, the, the loss of liberty and so forth. With that said, I would like to see greater experimentation, right? And sort of the conditions of confinement. The first, the first priority is always safety. It's officer and inmate safety, uh, especially at the highest level of, of, of risk uh, institutions, right? But beyond that, what, what could we do, right, to increase training and, and trades and skills? What else could we do, right, to increase uh, offender rehabilitation efforts? What modifications to the environment could we make? For example, in certain prison systems, there's no air conditioning, right? I live without air conditioning. So I think, uh, you know, even changing the environment in, in, way, in ways like that can be conducive. Uh, prisons face a real problem, especially the uh, higher level security prisons, right? Where <clears throat> gangs are a major issue, right? Where violence is a major issue and it's hard to do anything beyond regulate that. But I think we need to take a hard look at that. I think we need to make prisons more productive, uh, as safe as possible and open the open the area to some experimentation in terms of preparing people for, for leaving prison. So I, I want to get to some of these audience questions uh, before we run out of time. And one of them goes to uh, the root cause issue, but it's pointing to a potentially different root cause that um, they would like your comments on, which is the role that the high single motherhood uh, uh, rate particularly in Black and Latino communities, might be playing uh, with in, in the broader crime problem? Is, is that something that we can perhaps view as a root cause of crime? I'm thinking here of maybe, you know, an increased chance that the socialization mm -hmm. process of children breaks down. Um, how should we be thinking about that in terms of the broader crime problem and the role it plays in Barry? I'll start with you there. I'm not sure. When I did a study on... Uh, children of single parents uh, in the late 90s, and this was among African-Americans, crime was going down and African-American crime was going down. I'm just not sure this relationship, certainly on the face of it, it just sounds intuitively better to be raised by two parents, especially for boys, as Heather McDonald often says, mm -hmm. to have a father present. It just sounds intuitively right. But whether there's this relationship, uh, you know, proven relationship between that uh, single parent uh, upbringing and crime, I just don't know. I'm not so sure there is. Yeah, I, I think it's certainly a correlate, especially, you know, when we look at aggregate, you know, aerial types of studies. It's a risk factor at the individual level uh, in, in terms of the magnitude of that risk. That's debatable. I think it's very points out. You know, there, there are. Um, it's probably better to have a single parent than to have a have two parents and one of them is living a highly criminal lifestyle or both worse, which is typically what we see. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked a lot about prison uh, in this conversation. We haven't talked so much about jail, which, you know, accounts for a substantial number of people incarcerated in the United States on any given day. And the huge portion of people in jails across the country are there as pretrial detainees, as people who are awaiting the dispositions of their cases. And so we have seen, as part of the broader decarceration movement, a very big push uh, for what's called bail reform, the idea that we should uh, make 
um, uh, jail detention, pretrial detention, much less likely by reducing uh, the conditions that must be met to secure release um, by, by people charged with crimes. Uh, John, I know you're actually working on a paper on bail reform in Chicago right now. I mean, how should we think about some of these reform efforts? Have they contributed to the crime problem that we're seeing now, do you think? I think they have um, marginally. I, I think uh, one of the great things about our system of government is like the states can experiment with this. And we've seen experiments in New York and uh, uh, other places, and Chicago is one of them, right? And we can sort of see what happens, what the benefits are, and we can weigh the pros and cons here. Um, in terms of bail reform, this is sort of a useful language. Bail reform has sometimes been translated into doing away with bail, right? And that all we do is we're only going to keep some people in preventative detention, uh, a very, very few number of people in preventative detention, and then release everybody else out, right? And, and that's partly what you see in Chicago. It's partly what you, I think you've written about in, in New York City. And the problem with that, of course, is that they are highly, they're still engaged in that lifestyle and there's no sort of, you know, being put in a corner, so to speak. And this is a feedback loop to violence on the street. And I think we see it in Chicago. I think we've seen it in New York and other, other places. So there are places, there are things we can do with bail reform, right, to help out people accused of crimes without, I think, also jeopardizing public safety. I'd like to see more electronic monitoring used mm -hmm. in this regard, by the way. The U.S. is way behind on this. I just read the other day that the U.K. has expanded mm -hmm. its use of electronic monitoring. I, I don't understand with our levels of technological capacity why we aren't pursuing this more uh, for, for in, in lieu of bail, for, for pretrial detainees, for probationers and definitely for parolees who have this horrendous uh, recidivism problem. You know, Barry, can you say a, a little more about that actually? Because you know, I, I think our audience may have some questions about, for example, how it is that uh, electronic monitors might help sort of mitigate some of the risks that we're trying to mitigate when we incarcerate someone in pretrial detention, particularly on the grounds of dangerousness, right? I presumably, the monitor itself doesn't stop an individual from leaving their house no. or committing a crime or cutting it off. So how how do we see uh, what role does enforcement play in making these kinds of uh, e-monitoring programs successful? Well, it would alert the authorities, the, the, the ankle brace, it would alert the authorities if it's removed from the offender's ankle. It would also alert the authorities if the offender goes to a place that's been excluded, mm -hmm. okay, from his legitimate, uh, you know, entry. And that could protect, for instance, victims of crimes. So if you have a zone that's created, which includes the victim's home and place of employment, that would be a big help against uh, reprisals, for instance. Uh, so... There are things that the electronic monitoring can do. There are things it can't do. For instance, it can't tell the authorities he is now committing a crime. That's the biggest shortcoming. And by the way, I'm not sure that the technology won't improve in the future mm -hmm. and enable us to make that determination. Mm -hmm. So I see this as a great opportunity because the reality is 
people who were released now, whether they're pretrial detainees, probationers, or parolees, are on kind of an honor system, aren't they? I mean, you don't have, with their caseloads, you don't have probation and parole officers on their backs all the time. And therefore, it's really an honor system. You're saying, go out there and be a good fellow now. Don't do any more crime. But mm-hmm. I'd say, let's, let's wire them up. Let's tag them. Let's use electronic monitoring. And let's at least get a technological advantage in, in when we release them. So we've only got four minutes left. So I want to do a just quick lightning round uh, uh, on two questions that we've gotten from our audience. One is, is there a way for us to identify what the ideal level of incarceration is, say, in the United States? John. Oh, I, I, I think so. I think um, if we really wanted to nail down some of the quantitative studies, uh, I, I think there's probably thresholds there that we can look at. For example, uh, in 1960, it was about 0.05% of the population was incarcerated. What 1970, 0.08%, right? This time of massive growth and crime. Uh, it wasn't until 76 that it reached point. 0.1%. Remember, we're talking about mass incarceration, 0.1%. Uh, dec- another decade later, in 1980, it was 0.2%. Today, it's about 0.4%. Uh, that seems to be what you might want to expect, some range around there, where if we go above that, we might be thinking, you know, we want to look at what we're doing. And if we go below that, right, uh, we, we, we can tailor it to the volume of crime in an area, but it's, it's one way of scaling it. Yeah, Barry, I'm, I'm thinking now of John DeLulio's famous uh, piece in the Wall Street Journal, Two Million Prisoners yeah. is Enough. Was he right? <laughs> well, it depends on the level of crime, doesn't it? I mean, you can't yeah. have an abstract answer to that. If crime goes up, you'll need more people incarcerated. If crime goes down, then you should have fewer. Taking into account yeah. the legs, of course, it won't happen right away. But that the answer has to depend on the amount of crime. Yeah. And another quick lightning round question here. What should we make of so-called restorative justice programs? Is, is there promise there? Yeah, there's promise for low-level offenses, and, and there's promise if a, a parolee uh, wants to uh, really uh, engage in this sort of thing. But these are really, they're, they're adjuncts to imprisonment when there are serious offenses involved. They're, they're not in lieu of imprisonment. That, that would be... Uh, rather obscene if you have a really serious and violent offense. John? I agree. Yeah, I agree. Well, great. Um, Well, I wish we could carry this conversation on for for two or three hours. Honestly, I could talk to you gentlemen about these topics uh, all day. And I I think our audience, uh, uh, you know, I hope our audience has reached the same conclusion that I did many years ago, which is that you two are among the most brilliant minds uh, on these topics. And I think, John, your dog agrees. Um, There we go. So, uh, yeah, with that, I just want to thank you both for this really insightful and timely conversation. Um, I hope that you will both continue to do the work that you're doing and will continue to engage with the other side in this really important debate. Um, Before I close, however, I want to just invite our public audience to browse the Manhattan Institute's research and subscribe to our newsletters. Um, And if you're able, uh, please consider supporting the Institute at the link uh, that you will see below. After all, MI is a nonprofit organization and our work does uh, depend on support from people like you. Thank you so much. I hope you all enjoyed the conversation and that you will uh, attend the next one.
Thank you. Ralph. Thank you. For, thank you very much, Ralph. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.